Today's program was brought to you by Copper and Kings, pure copper pot distilled American brandy aged in Kentucky bourbon barrels. For more information, visit copperandkings.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Well, hello and welcome to Chef's Story. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton, and today we're broadcasting from the International Culinary Center in New York City. And I have to say, if you don't know where we're located, the International Culinary Center is in Soho on Broadway and Grand Street. And when we first opened as the French Culinary Institute here in 1984, there was one pioneering restaurant that was wowing New York on Grand Street. That was the only reason New York knew Grand Street, and it was Chanterelle. And so it's a absolute pleasure and a distinct honor today to have with me the chef and owner of Chanterelle and now Elon Restaurant, David Waltock. David, welcome. Thank you. Um, to bring back memories being down here on Grand Street? It looks very different. <laughs> <laughs> the street names are the same, but nothing yeah. else is. <laughs> well, it'll be um, uh, very interesting when we get that part of your story of uh, what it was like to be in Soho as a pioneer. Um, but anyway, uh, I, what I want to tell people is that um, you have won many, many awards, including the Outstanding Restaurant Award for Chanterelle back in 2004 at the James Beard Foundation. Uh, you were the best chef for New York City in 2007 from the Beard Foundation. Uh, you've had the books Chanterelle, the Story, and Recipes of a Restaurant Classic came out in 2008 and uh, the big one that i think rocked the world was staff meals from chanterelle you think so <laughs> i think so everybody loved that book i mean it was so delicious everybody just wanted to work for you <laughs> you know and and it was not just the the recipes in that book i think it was the caring and the way you you see your staff so that's another um issue that we'll get into but you're a new york city boy from the Bronx. From the Bronx. Yep. Yeah. And uh, what part of the Bronx? Kingsbridge area. Kingsbridge area. Yeah. Yankees fan? I'm not a sports fan at all. At all? Not at all. No. My gosh. So, that I mean. Doesn't interest me at all. How, I mean, being in the shadow of Yankee Stadium up there. I people give you to avoid even the conversation. issues. So, uh, when you were a kid, what were you into? Um. When I was a kid, I thought I was going to be a scientist, and I was very interested in science. And um, um, uh, mostly uh, natural science, biology, and so forth. Um, and uh, I went to the Bronx High School of Science. And great school. It is a great school, and I... I had a good time there and um, ended up going to City College and majoring in biological oceanography and it became apparent to me that this was not the path that I was going to follow and 
sometime before that, I, I would say probably when I was in my, uh, maybe when I was 12 or 13 years old, I started getting very, very interested in cooking and in food and reading a lot and trying things out at home and initially didn't really think of that as something that could be a career because this was 1960s and the whole culture of chefs and restaurants and food channel and all of that stuff had was way in the future and nobody I knew was a chef or had anything to do with working in restaurants and so I, I kind of discounted it um, but it was an abiding interest and um, I, so what were you reading? You said you would read about reading, food. Was it Gourmet Magazine? No, it was, It was. Uh, I mean, I guess it was Gourmet Magazine. I got, um, uh, I, I got really interested in um, uh, French cooking, which was sort of the, the gateway to, to cooking in those days. Well, how, did, how did you do that? In the Bronx, there weren't a lot of French restaurants. Did we you come into to, Manhattan? I, I did. I mean, I, my, my initial, I would say, fascination and exposure to food actually is very restaurant oriented because I mean there was my mother cooked and her sisters were nearby and they cooked and they'd like to talk about food and um, but it was always kind of my parents loved to go to the theater and they loved to go to concerts and they when I got to be a certain age I would get to go along and very, very often those outings would include dinner at usually one of the, at that time, many, many French bistros that were in the theater district. There's mm-hmm. still a few that remain. Mm-hmm. And it was magical for me to go to a restaurant, and it was magical to see the care that was put into preparing food and that and that you had a choice and that you could try something that you'd never had, you'd heard of, but you'd never tasted before. And um, I just I just was captivated with that, and and that's sort of informed my my life because I I like to cook at home when I have the opportunity, and I'm I'm a I think I'm a very very good home cook, but I'm I've always been interested in restaurants as for the culinary ex, uh, experience, but also the entire experience. It's kind of um, it was it was something so different for me as a kid growing up in the Bronx that it just um, you know it just was something that was utterly fascinating to me. Well, so tell me when you went to um, uh, study oceanography was back in the sixties was this? Well, I let's see. I graduated from high school in seventy one. Okay, so so, so in the seventies. So was conservation of fish an issue when you were studying oceanography? I mean, it was in it was in the background. I mean, ecology is what biological oceanography is pretty much about. <clears throat> but I mean, I think I had an idea about you know being Jacques Cousteau and and you know uh, going on all these adventures. And it turned out that it was much more sort of prosaic and uh, the the way to get anywhere was through a lot of very um, um, you know repetitive um, studies and a lot of statistics and a lot of 
computers, which were just starting out. And that wasn't really for me. I have actually, as it turns out, I enjoy doing lots of tedious things, but not those, <laughs> not those tedious things. So so when did the, um, the love of food really grab you? And how did you, you know, when did you make it uh, your life's work? How did you decide on that? Well, it's it's hard really to explain. I mean, I guess I had heard about the Culinary Institute, and I was interested in that. Um, I, um, at some point during my college time, um, through a series of various French friends and friends of friends, got to meet um, Giorgio De Luca when he had the cheese shop just a few blocks away before Dean and De Luca, long before Dean and De Luca, and. He was passionate about about food and about cheese and so on. And that was interesting to me. <clears throat> and um, uh, I went off after college, and I was I was actually quite young. I was 20 years old when I graduated college, and um, did the you know six or eight month sort of backpack tour of Europe, which did include some time in France and, and did include uh, a couple of good restaurants on sort of my father's American Express card. Can you um, remember the names of the restaurants? Well, the, the most important one was La Pyramide, which was, you know, you know legendary, and it was something that I had built up this whole, you know, the, there was a whole, uh, you know, mythology about La Pyramide, and... Um, you know, I, I really felt like it lived up to what I had hoped it would be. It, oh. was, it was, you know, looking back, it was not cutting edge. It was sort of a museum to to what um, Fernand Plant had, had done there. He was gone, of course, but his wife was still there. And a lot of the people that, if you looked at the books that had pictures of La Pyramide, there were still, his sommelier was still the sommelier mm-hmm. in the, you know. Bocuse the, worked there, didn't the, he? Yeah. yeah. And, and Verger, everybody, everybody, everybody. Everybody of that generation. So what was your expectation? Share with the listeners, because I, I think our generation knows about some of those iconic restaurants in Paris and in, in the rest of France that really uh, set the standard of haute cuisine and everybody had to work in those restaurants mm. so you as a young american what was your expectation well of- i wanted to i wanted I, I was traveling by myself i was i believe i found an inexpensive hotel i don't remember if it was in dijon or Lyon. it was it was kind of a long train ride away and i made a reservation for lunch and i went for lunch and i had you know, two half bottles of wine, and uh, you know, um, I had a, a gratin of crayfish tails, which was one of their classic dishes. And I, I think I might have had tornados rossini. It was very powerful, rich food. But um, a lot of what made an impression on me was the fact that I was, you know, I was 20 years old, and I was by myself. And it, the way I was treated was with you know respect but with without pretension it was i've never found um my experience with restaurants in france in general especially restaurants outside of paris is that you know people always talk americans always talk about 
being mistreated or, or, or looked down on and so forth. And I've never had that experience. And that's very much sort of informed the way I approached opening a restaurant and treating people here when I opened a restaurant. Um, and I, I just thought it was perfect. It was, you know, it was what I expected it to be, and it, and it, it, it was um, what I hoped it would be. And that, that was kind of my whole experience of, of a lot of my experience of France. You know, I had a lot of romantic ideas about what Paris was going to look like and smell like, and, and it was pretty much just like that, which doesn't happen very often in life, by the way. No, no. Uh, so uh, you, you came back from Europe, did your I backpacking. Came, I and came back from Europe. I couldn't take it anymore, and um, I... <clears throat> Um, I, I don't remember exactly in what order, but I applied to the CIA. I got Giorgio De Luca to write me a letter of recommendation. Um, I had not worked in a restaurant, so I thought maybe it would be a good idea to work in a restaurant to see if this is really something I wanted to do. And um, a friend was a waitress at the Empire Diner, um, which had just been redone and reopened by... Um, some people that had a restaurant on the Upper West Side, and it was a diner, but it wasn't a diner, and it was, you know, very fun and um, very chaotic. Um, they had hired as a chef a guy who had never been a chef in a restaurant before. He had been a, Aaron Copeland's private chef. His name was Sophronis Mundy. And he liked me, and he hired me, and I had no experience. But um, the the one of the things that they did there, that we did there, was that we did a prefix dinner that was like a five-course dinner for, I don't know, 10 or $12, and it changed every night. And because this was, I guess, probably 1975, 76, it was it was a different scene and there were a lot of people that weren't terribly responsible and so I would often come in and food would get delivered and nobody would tell me what to do so I had no business making those kind of decisions but somebody had to so I kind of started prepping things and put together menus and you know it was Where kind was of ridiculous. Where was the chef? He was hung over. Yeah. Okay. Um, and he would wander in eventually. Um, not to say anything against him, he was, he was a really great guy. Um, but and what would he get upset with you taking not, not at over? All. No, no, he was no, happy. No, no. He was appreciative. He was very happy. And so I worked there for a while, and um, I got into the CIA, and I went to the CIA, and I found it interesting and somewhat educational in terms of physical you know, the actual movements of doing things and some things about organization. But I kind of knew a lot about food from reading and experimenting and thinking. Mm -hmm. um, and um, so I went there for a while. And then I did, um, tell me if I'm, if there's too many details. And you no, no, I, I think I, I did uh, an externship. that's what this, this is what the show is about, okay. to get into the nitty gritty of All what right. makes a chef. Well, I, I went and I did an externship at Tavern on the Green, which was a, a whole other experience. Who, who was the chef then? Daniel Dunant. 
he was had formerly been the chef at the Connaught Hotel in London. Um, and I did that, and then I actually stayed longer than I was supposed to because um, I kind of liked being back in New York and um, started seeing the person who is now my wife and went back to the CIA. How'd you meet her? Well, that's another very long story. She, <laughs> I had met her long before she was a good friend of my girlfriend in high school. Oh. And they had known each other since they were kids. So I knew her peripherally and then sort of re-met her when I came back to New York for that, for that summer. Um, and anyway, I just decided I didn't want to stay at the uh, CIA anymore. And <clears throat> through someone I had met when I was at Empire, was offered a job at a little French restaurant called La Petite Ferme, which originally was in the village and then had moved up to the Upper East Side. And it was, quote-unquote, a sous-chef position. And I learned when I took the position that I was the sous-chef because I was the other person in the kitchen that wasn't the chef. <laughs> so, but it sounded good. And um, I worked there for a couple of years. And um, Did you learn a lot? I learned some things. I it was a very limited menu, and it was very specific. It was um, the owner was a man named Charles Chaviot, whose family owns uh, or owned a very famous hotel and restaurant in Burgundy called the Hotel de la Poste in Bonn. Oh yeah, and he was, I think, the black sheep of the family. Ended <laughs> up in the U.S. and um, had this restaurant but it was it was again a very very limited menu and it was very simple 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 french food and it was well done i i enjoyed working there it just became it became a lot of the same thing over and over again after a while and while i was doing that i was i was working mostly lunch so i was i would come in early in the morning i would set up the kitchen and we would do lunch and sometimes i worked dinner but most of the time i was done by the middle of the afternoon and so I would go shopping and I would go home and I would cook and um, at some point decided that it would be fun to do these rather elaborate dinners um, my girlfriend now wife and I did in this tiny studio apartment on the Upper East Side on York Avenue and we would invite six people or so and <clears throat> it would be a basically it's what we would now call a tasting menu and we would select wines and Karen would write the menus out and she would and her buy beautiful flowers <laughs> and, um, and you know as often happens in these sort of this kind of a story everybody said well you should open a restaurant and we did Okay, we're going to take a little break here and when we come back we're going to hear about the birthing of the Chanterelle Hey, what's up? This is Jack Inslee, the executive producer of Heritage Radio Network, also the host of Full Service Radio. And I want to talk to you about brandy. Uh, I was lucky enough to visit Louisville, and we all know Kentucky is whiskey territory. However, the best thing I had to drink was brandy. I got to visit Copper and King's Distillery, and they make pure copper pot distilled American brandy 
aged in Welcome Kentucky back. bourbon You're barrels. listening to Matured Chef's Story, and, and my guest today right. is David Waltuck of Elan Restaurant. And, uh, the stuff is his, double distilled, non-chill filtered, uh, unadulterated by bois, sugar, or color. And this stuff is feisty, is rambunctious, with a long, well, smooth finish. The stuff isn't made exactly in the style of an international brandy or a cognac. It's more along the lines of an American whiskey. I can really be honest here and tell you, I'm not just reading you an ad, I'm giving you a tip. American brandy, you're not seeing it everywhere. Place. Copper and Kings is doing um, it incredibly well, and, and we they're cool looking, people. Um, the downtown, distillery is we, full we of incredible art. Like I said, they're playing we, rock and roll to the barrels. So again, Copper and Kings, pure copper, pot distilled, American brandy, aged in Kentucky bourbon barrels. That's copperandkings.com. Drink it neat, put it in a cocktail, sub it for your brown spirits, experiment, have fun, get funky. This stuff is awesome. Like you said, frontier. It was a. It was a, a gritty. A, a, a borderline kind of area, and it completely different than than what it is now. Um, and we started looking, and um, you know, we realized we couldn't afford West Broadway because that would be like a thousand dollars a month for a retail space. And so we looked off of West Broadway and. Initially, we were thinking, I was thinking, we were thinking about a space that was on Grand Street um, that was appealing. Um, but I, I kind of, we were very close to signing a lease, and I had this sort of epiphany that I was not ready for this. It was too big. And then looked at another space just down the block um, at, at Grand and Green which was a corner retail space that seemed all, all of a sudden just seemed perfect. And um, um, it, it was um, not a restaurant. It had been uh, various things, but most recently it had been like a bodega. And um, you could see when you went in that it had beautiful proportions and it, had, um, and it was a corner which was enormously appealing. And it had... Um, a lot of interesting details that had been really obscured. I mean, it had this big fluorescent light that was hanging down, but you could see that there was a, a beautiful pressed tin ceiling above that that had been painted some hideous color. And there was um, wood wainscoting that had been painted over a thousand times and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, ultimately that was where we opened Chanterelle. So you actually hadn't been a chef all that long, maybe five years? I mean, I honestly don't think I could have been described as a chef at that point. I had been cooking professionally for perhaps four years at most. Four years at most. And <clears throat> and how many seats did Chanterelle have? 30 seats. 30 seats. So Ten it was seats. like throwing a big dinner party every night. I would say no, it was not. All right, explain that. Well, it... Because a lot of people think, I've thrown dinner parties for 30 people. I can run a restaurant. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that a restaurant is a place where people come in on their schedule, and they have a menu that they look at, and they get to order what they want. At least that was this restaurant. There are other scenarios for restaurants that are more like a dinner party, um, but... I've never been that much of a fan of that. I've always, I going back to what we were talking about earlier, part of what 
to me is exciting and appealing about a restaurant is that you get to look at a menu and order stuff that you want. Um, there's definitely a place for restaurants that have a, a prefix that doesn't, you know, that everyone comes in and has, and I understand that, but that's less appealing to me, and I certainly didn't want to provide a less a, an experience that was less appealing to me to my clients. So, what gave you the courage after four years of cooking? I have no idea. I I guess I was young and foolish. I mean, I didn't really think about it. wasn't It wasn't an enormous. It was it was a lot not a big deal. It's not as big a deal in those days. How much did it cost to create Chanterelle? It was so beautiful. We we did it for about a hundred thousand dollars. Wow. Um, we thought we and could the do rent it for was? less. The rent? The rent was eight hundred and fifty dollars a month. Wow. And what was your most expensive entree when you <clears throat> opened? I don't remember. I, I think yeah. we, we I don't, I don't remember, but I, I do remember that we were changing the menu. I was changing the menu every week for a while, most for quite a while. And it was a very limited menu, but it was a, a menu, an a la carte menu. And then at a certain point, we decided that we would do a prefix, still with, with choices, but that we only had so many seats and that we had to sort of ensure that, that everybody that came in <clears throat> had a full meal. Yeah. Um, I remember that our our um, tasting menu, which was I think seven or eight courses, was thirty dollars when we opened. Yeah. We always did a we always did a, uh, an, a you know a three course and I think it was a seven course um, option and we always did the cheese course from the day we opened, um, which was not something that anybody, anybody else was did. doing. Yeah. So how did you conceive your first menu? It was based, I think, uh, on all those dinner parties and all the, you know, the notebooks that I had been writing and things I had been thinking about. And, and it was also based on the little kitchen that we had and what was I thought would be feasible and possible there. Um, when we first opened, I didn't, I didn't know if people would come. So I... I I had somebody that helped me do prep during the day, and then they went home, and I was just alone in the kitchen at night with one person washing dishes, and that <clears throat> that did not go well. Um, and it took about a week or so before I realized that 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 was not a great idea. And then I added one person, and then ultimately there were there was myself and two other people um, cooking. And Karen was out front, yeah. and. And how many waiters did you have? Two? Usually two. Yeah. Usually two. Some people would dream about having a restaurant like that again today, which is, you know. It's very, very, it's it's a very different world now. Today, yeah. We'll talk about that later. So, um, what... You were renowned for, you know, the New York Times came in, and how how did that change your life? Well... I mean, what, what, what changed our life more than the New York Times, because we had, we had a, a group of investors. I mean, most of them put in $5,000. It was not a lot of money. Uh, I guess $5,000 was a lot more money in 1979 than it is today. But, you know, we had a, a group of investors. A lot of them were family 
A lot of them were people in the neighborhood. We had gotten um, a group of Soho gallery owners and, and so on that I made dinner for in this unfinished restaurant, and they ended up <clears throat> kicking in enough money for us to finish and, and get open. Um, but I didn't know that, you know, I, I didn't, there was no PR, there was no, we just opened the doors. And, but through a, a sort of a series of coincidences, um, as I remember it, there was a gentleman, everyone in the neighborhood saw that we were working on this place because we were doing it, a lot of it ourselves, stripping paint, banging on the cast iron facade with ball peen hammers to get the old paint off and then repainting it. And um, so people knew that this was happening and they were in, interested. And there was a guy who uh, was a writer for New York Magazine who came in, who lived in the neighborhood and came in. He wrote a, a financial column for New York Magazine. And I guess he liked it, and I guess he alerted Gail Green that she should check it out. And she um, reviewed Chanterelle. We had opened November 14th, 1979, and we were reviewed by Gail um, in the, what was it, the end of the decade issue of New York Magazine, which came out at the end of December, obviously, and um, was on the newsstands for two weeks. And then we were busy after that. You know, we, we, were, we were... The power uh, of the press. Almost as busy as we wanted to be. We didn't have a lot of seats to fill. Yeah. So um, we're going to take another break. But when we come back... What I want you to do is tell us how your cooking has evolved. Now you have Elan. What do you look back to the old David of 1979? And how did your cooking evolve over the years? Welcome back. You're listening to Chef's Story, and today my guest is David Waltuck, um, really an iconic chef in New York City, probably the United States, uh, one of the great chefs that Young Turk uh, period of the 1970s and 80s, uh, who were really uh, evolving American cuisine at that time. So, David, you you know you had Chanterelle had a French name. Uh, it was French inspired, but I think you really did use American products, and I think you're you you were never looked at as a French chef in quotes. You were a young American with incredibly sophisticated taste and touch. Well, so, I would say that the 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 one of the appeals of the name Chanterelle was that it sounded French, but it's it's not. Um, so we were kind of it was not la or la. Um, and uh, and it's the same. It's a word that's used both in French and English, although in French it's usually girol. Um But in any case, one of the, the pur- one of the purposes of that was to indicate that we were doing a version of French food, but we were not French. We mm-hmm. were not. Our menu was not in French. We did not have the sort of hierarchy of what was. The, the fancy French restaurant of New York of those days, um, and um, and w- coming back to what something we discussed earlier, 
I mentioned before that um, very, very, very well in restaurants in France, even three-star restaurants in France, um, you know, as a fairly young guy, obviously not with a lot of money coming in and being interested in what they were doing. Um, And I think the the stereotype of the haughty French um, uh, service is more of a New York thing than it is a French thing. Uh, I think that the French restaurants of a certain level in New York were, were all about that. And we were determined not to be in any way like that. So, um, so again, we, were, we didn't pretend to be French. My cooking was very, very, very French-influenced. I would say it was French cooking done by an American who had never cooked in France. Um, and in, uh, imbued with a, a kind of a, an American aesthetic, which I would um, characterize perhaps as being... Um, interested in stronger flavors, in um, like more sharp contrasts in general, a little more in your face than kind of classic French cooking, but very French technique oriented. I was very interested and still am very interested in that. Um, I should mention that, you know, back in that that, that era, <clears throat> it it was unheard of for us to be a French restaurant, even a quote-unquote French restaurant, and have a menu that was written in plain English. Um, even the Quilted Giraffe, which was opened around the same time, I think slightly before Chanterelle, um, when they first opened in New York, their menu was in French. There was, these were two Americans. From New Paltz. Right. <laughs> with, a, with a, a, a menu that had to be translated. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I've forgotten. So now, yeah, <laughs> let's go back to my question of your uh, evolving as a <clears throat> chef. How are, what is your food like today? How, how, you know, how have you seen your evolution in the last well, my, my, 40 my, years? Well, yeah, my food, um, I mean, I've been cooking for over 40 years. Yeah. But my, my food, I, I think, is not just one thing. Um, I think when I opened Chanterelle, and for a lot of the time that I had Chanterelle, um, it was it was aspiring to be a kind of a luxurious experience, um, uh, inspired by the three star French restaurants. Not not trying to be that, but inspired by it, a version of it. Um, but since that time, I've done other things. I did a little a, a bistro called Luzinc, which was uh, on, on Duane Street for years, and that was kind of intended to be more of the staff meals style. Um, I consulted in a number of restaurants that were not my restaurant, and, and I have so I, I, think I, I think I can do a lot of different things. What I do at Elan, and what the idea of Elan was, uh, is, um, is that um, it, it would be still my style of cooking, whatever that is, and I don't know exactly how to characterize that, but, um, but freed from the need to sort of prove anything. And so more playful, a lot more... Um, uh, um, a lot more Asian uh, influence sort of allowed to creep in without 
sort of apologizing in some way for it, which I, I kind of feel like at Chanterelle I, I did have that, but it was always, um, I mean, apologize is the wrong phrase, but um, the wrong word, but, um, uh, you know, kind of uh, pushed toward a more French sensibility. Um, so that's what I, that's what I do. Um, it's, it's intended to be very simple. I, I think that um, probably my cooking has gotten simpler. Um, um, why it was is always that? fairly simple. Why, why do you think it's gotten simpler? Because I, I try, I th- consciously think about simplifying all the time. I consciously think, is this necessary? Why is this here? I always think about why something is on a plate or why something is, is used in, in any stage of a cooking process. And, um, and because of the constraints of the kitchen at Elon, I'm, I'm also simplifying and streamlining and trying to say, how can I make this dish work in this kitchen with the cooks that I have and the equipment that I have so that it's the best it can be Probably not, to be honest, probably not what I would have been happy with at Chanterelle, but but pretty damn good, I think. People seem to think it's pretty damn good. Um, how do you think the industry has changed since your opening days? I mean, you, you, you were still not, you were still a vibrant part of the restaurant scene in New York City. There are very few chefs that have had the staying power that you've had. And you've ridden through four decades of trends, tastes, critics, uh, um, recessions, 9-11. I mean, there's a lot that's gone down, in, especially in downtown here where we are or just in New York City. How, how, what's your, your look back on how things have evolved? Well, I, I, two things come to mind. One is that um, I think that sort of my quote-unquote survival has to do with being, at Chanterelle especially, which was 30 years of Chanterelle, just being utterly involved in everything that went on there. I mean, I, I didn't create an empire. I, I'm not denigrating those chefs that do I kind of am mystified at how they do it but they, they seem to do it very well some of them but it wasn't me and so Karen and I were there we were, we were it was a mom and pop restaurant at whatever level it was utterly idiosyncratic and utterly a reflection of the combination of our personalities and our obsessions um, it wasn't there was no, you know, focus group that came together to figure out what we should do. We just did what we did utterly naturally without thinking about whether people would, you know, respond to it or not. We just wanted to see if they would. Um, and um, Can a young Karen and David do that today in today's New difficult. York? Very, very, very difficult, I think, for many reasons. The, the cost is, is very, very, very high. There are no fringe neighborhoods, certainly not in Manhattan, that come to mind that would that would 
um, that would work the way Soho or Tribeca did uh, 20 or 30 years ago. Um, uh, there's a lot more restaurants. There is a lot more um, uh, good chefs. There's there's um, the cost of sort of doing business is enormously high. To um, it, it's it's difficult. It's it's. Have you seen the critics change? What was a critic like? We had Craig Claiborne way back when, and well, I, today. I didn't have Craig Claiborne. I had Mimi Sheridan. Oh, you had Mimi Sheridan. Okay. Yeah. And so, have you noticed a difference in the critics? You know, I, I haven't studied this. I read the New York Times review and other reviews. Um, clearly, like everything about the restaurant business and restaurants in New York, it even it actually, I have to say. I use the term restaurant business, but it, 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 it always, like, I always have this momentary, like, stop in my brain when I use that, um, that, that, that term. Because um, to me, and, and still, really, to me, like, it's not a business. It was never really a business. I think that's what appealed to people, that really made a connection to people at Chanterelle. Aside from you know, the, the cooking or the service, it, all of those things were an expression of something. And that, you know, it really, it was it was kind of like an art project. It was not, it, it was not intended to be um, sort of a get-rich scheme. It was not intended to be um, anything other than like I said, the natural outgrowth of who Karen and I were. It's almost like performance art. Yeah. <laughs> Food performance yeah. art. So yeah. anyway, but but it is a business and it, it has to be and more more and more so it's a business. And so there's uh, the the cost of doing business is very high. Rents are high. There aren't very few marginal neighborhoods. Um, there are lots of restaurants. On and on and on. Um, and then I, th- I think that um, talking about critics, I think the 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 power of those critics is is lim- more limited than it was when we got four stars um, in 1987, the first time from the New York Times. We still had 30 seats, and we were told by the phone company that we the amount of phone calls that we were getting, we would have had to put in 10 more lines to even begin to handle them. I mean, I think a four-star review for a, a somewhat a somewhat obscure restaurant would probably produce maybe not quite that result, but something major for that little restaurant. But in general, I don't think that um, those reviews have the power that they did. It used to be New York Times. It used to be New York Magazine, and a few others, um, and it still is. Um, but I think that um, it's fragmented. I think the the, re- the world of restaurants in New York is very fragmented. It's going in different directions all the time, and the criticism is is fragmented. And it's part of it is because of the the whole internet phenomenon, and <clears throat> you know everybody getting to be. A critic, right? What inspires you these days? <sighs> I mean, I guess 
putting together food and making dishes, what is most inspiring is is just product. I mean, I guess that's sort of always been true, but it's it's a little easier now, I think. Um, I mean, Elan is near the Union Square Green Market, and when it's when it's really going, it's just a great place to walk around and, and look at things and think about things. When we started, you know, you, you couldn't get a lot of the products that you can get now. We used to get, um, we, would get we would get wild mushrooms because, you know, somebody that liked to gather wild mushrooms saw the name of the restaurant and figured, well, they must want our chanterelles. So they would show up, you know, in a, in a station wagon with brown paper bags of chanterelles that they had gathered in New Jersey, and they had more than they could use. I mean, you couldn't order chanterelles from a, uh, from a purveyor. Um, <clears throat> that was a tough choice to name. <laughs> yeah. Well, it worked. Did you, how often would you have chanterelle on your menu? Oh, pretty often. Pretty often, Pretty often, yeah. but again, it was a different world then. They, they seem to have a year-round season now because... They come from a million different places, and they're not always that good, you know, in the in the depths of winter or whatever. Right. They're, they're obviously better when they're really in season and from right. not too far away. Right. So, um, in what it, what you know, what's the next chapter? I know you have Elon. It's you know you. I think like every great artist. It, as you get more into your art, the simpler and the paring down to essence comes. Um, do you have a sense of where it's heading for you? I, I actually don't. Um, um, uh, you know, I had I had hoped in opening Elan that <clears throat> it would be sort of a springboard to get not only back in the kitchen, but to explore other things. Um, uh, it turned out that it became really all-encompassing because of, you know, the financial needs and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, um, uh, I, I would like to... I'd like to not just do one thing. I'd like to... I, I do love to cook. I, I do really still love the whole restaurant world, the kitchen of the restaurant and the restaurant itself. Um, I love the, the teamwork that's involved. I love the, the, the sort of camaraderie in the kitchen and, the, and, the, and also the sort of irreverence that goes along with that. Um, there aren't, I don't think there are many sort of office settings where you could joke around with your fellow workers in the same way that you can in a kitchen. It's really like, um, it's real, you know, it's like blood and bones, you know. <clears throat> so having a platoon. Mm -hmm. But I, I, don't, I don't know exactly what, uh, what, What's where next? I'm headed. Where you're headed. Um, well, we're winding down our interview, sadly, but uh, there's a lot of young uh, chefs that listen to this uh, program. And uh, you've definitely, you know, done the top four stars of the New York Times, you know, 10 lines to take the reservations, staying power for over 40 years in one of the toughest markets in the world. What three words or four words of advice oh for, a young, for a young chef who wants to be a David Waltuck? What, what, what do you think you can 
guide them with? I would say be true to yourself. You know, um, I would say uh, genuineness always wins. It's when I talked about the appeal, part of the appeal at least of of Chanterelle is, it, as again, it was it was a real outgrowth. It was a real expression of who I was and who Karen was is. Um, and that's that's key. Well, if you can accomplish that, it's huge. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank this has really been me. wonderful. And I want to thank all our listeners. And a shout out to our producers, Robin Cohen and Jack Inslee. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.